Recently, I came across a, a story of an atheist who owned a nightclub that was located adjacent to a church. And of course, the members of the church were annoyed by this place and began to pray. And they prayed for several years that the Lord will do something about the nightclub that was beside them. Eventually, one day, lightning struck the, light, the nightclub and destroyed it. The atheist, the owner, decided to sue the church. And when he went to court and the church leaders appeared, they refused to take responsibility for his loss. And the judge was very perplexed. He said, this is the strangest case I've ever seen. You have here an atheist who believes in answered prayer, and you have a church that will not take responsibility for answered prayer. Quite often, one wonders if we truly believe in prayer. If we truly believe that God answers prayer and that prayer, as we often say, works. The writer of Hebrews believed in prayer because he believed in the God who hears and answers prayer. And in Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 14 to 16, we have two commands, two exhortations. One of them, in verse 14, is that believers are to hold fast. We are to hold fast. In verse 15, he gives the reason. And then in verse 16, we have the second exhortation to come boldly or to approach the throne of grace. And I'm going to suggest to you that is a call to approach God in prayer. This passage comes after verse 13, where the writer concludes this argument that God's word is searching, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to decipher the finest, minute details of our hearts. God's word is searching, and the God of the word is inescapable because he is judge. But against that backdrop, he says that they are to hold fast to their faith that is in Christ, and they are to come boldly to the throne of grace. It is a call to prayer. And that's what I want us to look at as we consider verse 16 today. I want us to look then at the meaning of the exhortation. I want to look secondly at the manner in which they are to come near or draw near. And I thirdly want to look at the motivation for drawing near. So we're going to look at the meaning of drawing near, the manner of doing so, and the motivation. The writer in verse 14 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What does it mean to come to the throne of grace? To come boldly to the throne of grace? What does it mean to draw near? For that is the same word. 
when you look at the verb come or draw near and is used in the Old Testament Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint, you will find that the term that we have here, come, or to draw near, is often used in the religious context of worship. And so, for instance, you might look at a passage like Leviticus chapter 9, verse 7, where Moses says to Aaron, the high priest, he says, you are to draw near, that is, come, to the altar and offer, he says, your offerings and your burnt offerings and make atonement for yourself and for the people. When he called Aaron to come near or to draw near, he's referring to the act of worship, to present sacrifices, burnt offerings. You'll find, for example, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, where the Lord complains against his people. He says, this people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that, you see, is a description of their worship. They were drawing near to God, they were coming to God, and they were worshiping God insincerely. They were doing so merely verbally, but their heart was not engaged. To come to the throne of grace, or to draw near to the throne of grace, is really to worship. And you'll find that the writer of Hebrews uses this language of drawing near or coming to God in terms of worship. In chapter 12, he says, using the perfect verb, that we have already come to Mount Zion. We have already come to the, the place where men and their spirits have been justified. In other words, he's saying we've already entered into a relationship with God. But now he will, throughout this book, tell them that they are to come to God to draw near to God, ostensibly in the act of worship. For instance, you will see he uses this verb in terms of worship when he says, in Hebrews 10 verse 1, he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The other word approach is to come or to draw near. He's saying that the Old Testament sacrifices that were practiced, people kept on repeating these same sacrifices, but they could never make the persons who approach God, who came near to God, perfect or complete. They could not deal definitively with their sins, those who approach or came to God in worship. He will tell them in Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance. To draw near to God is in, the terms, in terms of worship. But it's important to note that when the writer says in chapter 4 and verse 16 of Hebrews, let us therefore come boldly to come to God, does not now in this, ter in this passage here, Hebrews 4.16, it does not refer generally to worship, but to the specific act of prayer. He says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You will see that the same term, to come or to approach God or to draw near to God, is used elsewhere in Hebrews in terms of prayer. One of the, one of the clearest places that is revealed is in Hebrews 7, verse 25, where the preacher, the pastor says, Therefore, he's able to save 
to the utmost or completely those who come to God through him. He means that Christ is able to save completely anyone who approaches God in worship and does so in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, to come to God is used in the context of prayer. In Hebrews 11 verse 6, the writer says, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But who is the person who comes to God? Well, it's the person who approaches God in prayer. That individual must believe two things about God. One, that God is a reality, that God exists. Cannot pray to a a dead deity. You must believe that he lives, that he exists. And secondly, that God is willing and able to reward you when you come to him. So, to come is used not only generally to mean worship, but to mean the specific act of prayer. And it is this way Hebrews 4 uses the term. Let us come, or let us therefore come boldly, is a call to approach God in prayer. The writer, in calling them to approach God, uses the present tense. And that means they are not only to approach God in prayer once, but they are to continually approach God in this activity. They are to draw near over and over again. But there's something else that we must see. Not only do we see the meaning then of coming, as that really refers to praying, but we see that they are to come near to approach God and to approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace. What is the throne of grace? Or what is the throne of God? It is not merely the presence of God, even though commentators will point that out. But it is really a reference to God's sovereign rule and reign. God's throne refers to God's rule over his creation and over his people. And in the Old Testament, the throne of God, the rule of God, was described severally. For example, the Old Testament describes God's throne, that is God's rule, as everlasting. So one reads in Psalm 45 verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. His throne, or his rule, is also described as holy. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 48 and verse, Psalm 47 and verse 8. God's throne is also described not only as everlasting and holy, but as righteous and just. The psalmist says in Psalm 89 verse 14 that God, that his, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne and mercy and truth go before you. And even where the term throne is not used specifically, but the concept is alluded to, God's throne is seen as a throne of judgment. So, 
Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, writes this. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. That's referring to the throne of God, the reigning God, the reigning Lord. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, for the writer, God's throne, which he's referring to God's rule, is not then merely an everlasting throne and a holy throne, a throne of justice and righteousness and judgment. But God's throne is a throne of grace. So, so we are told we are to come boldly, we are to come to God in prayer because his throne is characterized, built upon, established upon grace. That God in his reign rules over creation for the good of his people. That his throne is a throne of grace, unmerited favor. That God's throne is undeserved, boundless generosity. That God who rules, in other words, is ruling in unimaginable generosity and kindness. And therefore we are called to come to his throne in prayer. To come to the sovereign Lord who is characterized by free, undeserved, and boundless generosity. We have seen then the meaning of this exhortation. We are called to approach God in prayer because God is fundamentally in his reign characterized by unmerited favor, grace. But central to the command or to the exhortation is not only the meaning but the manner in which we are to approach God. For the text tells us plainly. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And the term that is translated here boldly, parisia, a term that is used frequently in the New Testament, is a compound term made up from two words, from pas, which means all, and resis, which means speech. Put together, the term means all speech or freedom in speech. The term that we have here, let us come boldly, means that we are to come before God with freedom of speech, with frankness, with plainness of expression, and therefore it is rendered boldness and confidence. We are to come before God with all of this, with freedom of speech, with boldness, with confidence. Parisia. It was a term that was used in classical Greek to describe the freedom of a citizen. A Greek citizen valued above anything else parisia, the right to freely express him or herself on any matter. That was the crowning gem of citizenship in classical Greek. One was able to freely express themselves. Parisia was not only used of the freedom of a citizen to express himself politically in the market square, but it was used to describe a true friend. Because a true friend was often compared, when you look at the literature of the time, a true friend was often described as one who would speak plainly and frankly, openly to you. One who would not curry favor. 
one who would not ply you with a lot of compliments and flattery that they did not mean. But a true friend always told you the truth. He spoke his mind. It was also parousia used to describe the relationship between a master and a pupil, a teacher and a student. Because a teacher was expected to tell the student exactly what he thought about him. Whereas the student expected the master to speak and tell him plainly, the master expected the student to openly confess his areas of weaknesses so that he might help him in his development. So parousia was a term that, yes, was a political term used to express the right of a citizen to speak plainly and candidly. It was used in a social context of the friend or of the teacher and the student. But it was not used pervasively in a religious sense. Nevertheless, the writer of Hebrews takes this term, term that we call boldness or freedom, takes it from the political arena and applies it in the religious arena. And he says, we are to come before God. We are to come boldly with freedom, with plainness of speech. It's a marvelous call. A marvelous call. This boldness and confidence that ought to characterize us, however, must be understood by the writer of Hebrews to refer to a privilege that we receive because of the objective death of Jesus Christ. In other words, the ground upon which we may freely come to God is not then on the, on the basis of our intrinsic value or merit. You and I, put otherwise, do not have an intrinsic innate right to come to God. The only reason we are to come before God with this openness, with this freedom, with this confidence and boldness, it is precisely because Jesus Christ by his blood has earned the right for us to come. And that is not just from my imagination. That's the reason why we had to read together Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 35. It's very interesting that in Hebrews 10 and verse 19 and verse 35, in these two verses, Hebrews 10 verse 19 and in Hebrews 10 verse 35, the term parousia occurs. It occurs two times and brackets that section. There in verse 19 and there in verse 35. And when you look at Hebrews 10 verse 19, you will note that the writer gives us the basis of our confidence before God. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness, parousia, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is through his flesh. Verses 19 and 20. What he's saying is that the, that the believer to whom this call has been extended to come boldly may safely and confidently approach God without shame and without fear. He may do so or she may do so Trusting in the promises of God because our Lord Jesus Christ has achieved something marvelous for them. It is by his blood. It is by his death upon the cross. It is by paying for our sins that he has opened a new way, 
a way that continues for us to come to God. It is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that we are approaching God. That is, no person can ever find acceptance with God unless he comes in Jesus Christ. Unless he rests and relies upon the payment of Christ for his or her sin. So, our boldness is through the blood. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the writer will continue to tell us in chapter 10. Not only does it open a new way of access to God for us, but Christ's death not only pardoned our sins, but cleansed us. In fact, he expresses it this way in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 10. He says, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with a sincere heart, a heart that has been changed, a person who has been given new spiritual life. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What he's saying then is that Christ's death forgave our sins, opened a way of access to God, but Christ's death worked internally by changing our hearts, by cleansing us from a dead conscience, a guilty conscience. You see, Christ, when he died, he died not only to pacify God, but to purge our hearts. And it is because Christ's blood that we have received his death, that we now have confidence. We may come on the basis of Christ's death confidently. We may come to God, approach God without shame and without trepidation. We may come in the freedom where we pour out our heart's questions and complaints and our petitions to God. We may come in the certainty that we will be heard because Jesus Christ has washed away our sins, has pardoned us by his blood and applied that pardon to our hearts and now we are free from guilt and shame and fear. We may come because of the blood. But there's something else to be understood that coming boldly to the throne of grace and coming through the blood of Christ, this boldness that we have received in Christ's blood, the writer says this is something to be guarded. So in verse 35, after reminding them of their confidence in Christ and after reminding them how they endured in the past their suffering and public humiliation and the reason that they endured is because they, they were believed that they had a greater possession that was coming, that is glory. He warns them in verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your parousia. You have parousia to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Christ, he says. Now he says, do not cast away your parousia, your confidence, which he says has great reward. So he says they must guard this confidence that they have received in Christ. And the reason he tells them is because they were wavering. They were thinking of turning back from the faith. And so he says they must continue to trust in the salvific, salvific work of Christ and trust in him who has cleansed them and granted them this confidence. And so we have seen two things. We have seen that the call to come boldly is a call to approach God in prayer and to come to the God who is a God of grace. But we've also seen that believers are to come candidly and come freely and boldly and confidently based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And to realize that Christ has cleansed us internally from the guilt of our sins. And that is the reason why we may come to God. 
But there's one thing else in verse 16 that I want to draw to your attention. It is now not just the meaning or the manner in which we're to come, but the motivation. Why do we come? Verse 16 tells us that in the second clause in the verse. Notice, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And then he's going to tell them why, the motivation. That, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. He's saying coming to the throne of God is not an empty pursuit. But when you come to God in prayer, you receive at least two things. You receive mercy. Mercy. And secondly, you receive grace. Now, some of the scholars who have studied Hebrews, this book of Hebrews, have suggested that mercy and grace are referring to one reality. And there is some sympathy with the position because mercy and grace are overlapping, have overlapping fields. There's a very close parallel in meaning between these two concepts. But nevertheless, though they are close, they are nevertheless distinct. They are to then not be conflated. We are to hold these two terms separately. What is mercy? In plain language, mercy refers to God's compassion to human misery. It is when God looks at men suffering, particularly in sin, that he is piteous towards them. That is mercy. It's when God takes pity on the misery of sinners. And so very often, mercy relates to man and his suffering in sin. But grace is different. It is not now God's compassion to those in misery, but it is God's goodness, God's kindness to men in need, to people in need. Mercy is God's compassion to sinners in their misery, but grace is God's goodness or kindness to people in their need. And the writer says that they are to come boldly to the throne of grace, that they may obtain mercy for their sins and that they might receive grace to deal with their needs. Notice how he puts it. He says that you might receive, that you might obtain mercy and that you might find grace. And when will you find grace? You will find grace to help in the time of need. That is, those who come to the throne of grace, they will obtain mercy for their sins and they will find grace when they need it. So here are the two grounds, the motivation. It's because the throne of grace provides you with mercy and it provides you with grace. I have a few observations that must be drawn from our text. The call to come to the throne of grace and to come boldly does not exclude coming to God humbly. And so the first thing I want to note is that when we are called to come boldly to the throne of grace, it means that we are also come to God contrightly. We are to come contrightly, humbly 
to God's throne. Every time a man or woman draws near to God, seeks God in prayer and in worship, that man or woman, the boy or girl, must come to God with humility. And when we draw near to God in prayer, especially those who are not yet converted, you must come to God humbly, contritely. You must come in repentance. The scriptures remind us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Drawing near to God means that we must recognize that we are sinners and that we need mercy. We must come to God first, then, in repentance. I'm reminded of what is said in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, we'll find mercy. You see, the first thing we do when we come to God, when we approach the throne of grace, we come on our knees. One of the best postures to pray is on our knees. Because prayer is a reflection of our need of God. And anyone who stands in the presence of God must know that he or she needs mercy that it is because of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. That we are great sinners. But we have a God who is great and abundant and rich in mercy. So you must come to the throne of grace. You must own your sins. You must admit to the Lord. You must say to him, Lord, I am a sinner. You must say, Lord, I have broken your commandments and I deserve hell, but have mercy. I remember the story of King Esther, of, of King and Esther, the King Artaxerxes and Esther. And King Artaxerxes was a difficult man. You just couldn't go in his presence when you liked. You remember the story of Artaxerxes who says that anybody who comes without invitation would be killed. And Esther took her life in her hand. And she comes before the king. She does not know whether she's going to be received or to be condemned to death. But she takes her life in her hand. The matter at stake was too great. And when Artaxerxes saw her, he held out the scepter, the golden scepter. And she was received in his presence. And we have a God who's more compassionate than King Artaxerxes. We have the King of glory, whose throne is a throne of mercy, who looks on us in our failings and our sinfulness and is piteous. We have a high priest in heaven who can be touched with our weaknesses, who knows our frailties, who knows that we are weak and failing creatures, so you must come. I know that when we mess up, we feel like hiding, but that's the time to come, to draw near. Because if you seek mercy, you will find it in God who forgives sin. The first act we must do if we are to come to the throne of God is to come confessing sins, forsaking them, and trusting in Jesus Christ. But not only must we come contritely, looking for mercy to deal with our many sins, we must come confidently to the throne of grace. 
The writer says it. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. I think that one of the reasons that it's so difficult for us to pray, I'm not saying it is the only reason or the greatest reason, but it is a reason. It is because we do not often appreciate the privilege it is to come to God. And if we are to appreciate it, we have to know what we have gotten compared to what the Old Testament saints did not have. In the Old Testament, only the high priest on the day of atonement, once a year, on that day of atonement, could draw near into the holiest of holies. We read in texts like Leviticus 16 of the peril of men coming close to God. We read the story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who came to God with unholy fire, who were not called to offer incense, and they were killed. The presence of God in the Old Testament was a great danger. God's presence in the midst of his people was dangerous. They could only approach him through appointed mediators like the high priest. But you and I today may come into the presence of God. We don't need any human priest. We don't need Mary or the Pope or any priest. We may come of an own in Jesus Christ. We must understand that this is a great privilege. We must recognize that we have access to God, but our access to God is rooted and grounded in the blood. You see, our boldness to come is boldness in Jesus. This is why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name what we are saying to God, don't accept me because of me, but accept me because of Christ. We come boldly in Jesus. We hide in Jesus. We are sheltered and covered in the righteousness of Jesus. It is Jesus who is our access to God. And so you must come, and you must come boldly, come boldly by resting on the death of Jesus Christ. Because anybody who comes in Jesus and depends upon his death for acceptance will find acceptance with God. You must come boldly, not only contritely, but boldly. But you must come continually. You must come continually. Let me just say before I get to this point, there's a little girl, you know, who, went, she was in, always in Sunday school, never went to church, so we adults gathered like here. And the first Sunday she got there, she heard the pastor say to the folks, now bow your heads to pray. And everybody bowed their heads. And she whispered to her grandmother, she said, grandmother, grandma, what are they looking for? What are they looking for? When you come to God, you must be looking for something. You must approach God boldly with specific requests. You must be searching for something. It's not an aimless venture. You're coming to God with real, genuine expectations from God. You're to come boldly and you're to make your requests specifically to Him. But when you come boldly, you are also to come continually to the throne of grace. One of the great blights on the church is our refusal to pray. I find it 
mystifying that we will gather for just about anything. We'll gather for family celebrations, birthdays, Christmases, and other celebrations with our families and friends. We'll gather to listen to Christian artists that we like, pack out auditoriums. We'll gather when there's barbecue, even a church barbecue or a luncheon or a church dinner. We'll gather for group meetings and discussions. But when we call people to pray, when we call the church to pray, it is often empty. It is a mystery that we can gather for everything else but, but for prayer. That we can invest a large amount of time in watching television and searching and the internet and watching YouTube and all kinds of stuff and following Twitter, but we can't take 10 minutes to pray. Why is it? Why is it that we neglect the throne of grace? It is primarily because we don't recognize our need, our need for God, our need for his help. And it is primarily because we don't recognize that God's throne for us here and now is not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. That God has all that we need. It is Matthew Henry, the great commentator of Scripture, centuries ago, who says that prayer is the God-ordained means by which we receive the things that we need. He's saying, in other words, there's only one way God has given to us that we can get things from him, and it is by asking. He says, you do not receive because you do not ask. And when you ask, you ask to consume upon your lust. My friends, you not only need mercy, but you need grace. And both of these these are found in prayer at the throne of grace. So not only are you to come once, but you are to come and keep coming. John Newton was correct. He says, thou art coming to a king. Great petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ask too much. You must come over and over. Tell God about your troubles. Tell him about your need. Tell him about your pain. Tell him your financial difficulties. Tell him about the loneliness you suffer. Tell him about the heartache and the violation you have felt in your person. Tell him where it hurts you the most. Because you see, it is from his throne that you will find help. That you will find grace. And in our lives, my friends, we are impoverished because we do not come to the place of grace. We we believe in committee meetings and we believe in all kinds of discussions to move the church along. We believe in our own abilities to cure our problems. But scripture calls us, as it calls the generation in the first century, come boldly to the throne of grace. You see, prayer is the means by which you receive the things you need from God. And no other way. And prayer is also the means, not the exclusive means, but one of the main means by which you maintain relationship with God. You can never be close to God. You can never be in a good, tight relationship with God without prayer. 
Because prayer is an expression of dependence upon God. And God draws near to those who are humble and contrite and those who need him. God withdraws himself from the proud and the self-sufficient. The man or woman who thinks that he does not need God will find that God does not need him or her. But the one who comes to God who says, Lord, I need you, God in his mercy unbosoms himself and manifests his mercy and grace. It is the means by which we maintain our relationship with God. When Paul was first converted, what did they say about him? What did they say of Paul when God converted? They said, he prayeth. It's a sign of a a godly man or woman that we pray. What was Paul doing? He was on his knee. He was praying. And oh, there's a wonderful opportunity given to you. In your private time at home, come boldly. You You don't need eloquent prayers to be heard. You don't have to be a master word simith for God to hear you. You don't even need to have perfect theology to pray. You just need to have a true and contrite and open heart. See, God is so wise and clever that even your sighings and your groanings and your, your, your utterances that are not understood, even by yourself, God himself is able to, to interpret those things. And he's able to give you far exceedingly more abundantly than you can ask or think. I want to suggest to you today that if there's any revolution that we need today, it's not merely a revolution in society, but a revolution here and now that we become people who storm the throne of grace, who take the throne of grace by force, who press ourselves upon God nakedly and without fear, that we come before God without shame saying, Lord, I need you. I cannot go without you because it is that cry that God hears. The king of heaven says to you, come, keep coming and come boldly because you will receive two things. You'll receive mercy for your sins and grace to meet all your needs. Will you take God up on that call? Do that today. Listen, we are habit-forming creatures. You take the right decision today, tomorrow it's easier to take another right decision. But if you take the wrong decision, a decision that leads to sin today, tomorrow you'll find it easier also to sin. Begin to formulate the right habits, to form the right addictions. Form an addiction to prayer, an addiction to God. Begin today and do it tomorrow and you'll find it by grace easier and easier as you persist. The throne of grace is open and you're invited. Will you come? May God help you. May he help me for Jesus' sake. Amen.